we want the quick fix of something or someone lifting up our shattered spirits. But the first place we should be running is to the Lord because he's the one with the true power to change and transform us. And he longs for us to cry out to him. Hey friends, welcome to the Hope and Help Project, the podcast that cultivates compassionate biblical conversations about life's challenging problems. I'm your host, Christine Chapel, and I'm really thankful you're here to join on today's conversation with author and writer Stacy Riach. In today's episode, Stacy and I talk about her book, Wilderness Wanderings, Finding Contentment in the Desert Times of Life, to examine God's big picture plan of the Israelites' trek through the wilderness and how their journey helps us find hope and wisdom for the daily trials we face in life. If this is your first time listening to the show, be sure to learn more about the Hope and Help Project by visiting faithfulsparrow.com forward slash project. The link is posted in the show description, and by visiting that page, you can learn all about the mission of the podcast. Before we get started, let me introduce you to our guest. Stacy is a pastor's wife and mother. She's passionate about studying the Bible and helping women apply God's life-changing truth to their daily lives. Her writing has been featured at Desiring God, The Gospel Coalition, Revive Our Hearts, Risen Motherhood, and she also writes regularly at her website. Stacy and her husband, Ben, live in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania with their four children. Hey there, Stacy. Thanks so much for joining us for the show today. Thanks so much for having me. You are the author of the book, Wilderness Wanderings, Finding Contentment in the Desert Times of Life, which aims at taking readers into the story of Israel's journey to the promised land as depicted in the Old Testament. Can you tell us why you decided to write a devotional for those walking through their own wilderness experiences? Sure. I really wrote the book out of my own desert experience, my own wilderness time. We had been going through a difficult time in our ministry. My husband's a pastor, and I happened to be at that point in life in a Bible study that was studying the life of Moses. And God just really used that study as water to a parched soul. So as I was studying the Israelites' trek through the wilderness, I was finding parallels with my own life. Sometimes I would identify with Israelites who were prone to whining and wishing for a certain, a different circumstance. And other times I identified with Moses and the challenges that he faced in leadership. So I wrote the book in hopes of encouraging the person that's walking through their own desert time, that there's hope in the midst of despair and that God's working and is with them and sees their suffering. And as a secondary reason, I wanted to write something that would be a little more accessible to the busy woman who maybe doesn't have time for an intense inductive Bible study. Maybe they have a, you know, young kids in the home and it's too hard to get out or they don't have big chunks of time to study. So I wanted to write a chronological devotional or study that you could do while you're in the carpool line or you could do in the 15 minutes of quiet that you have before your kids are up. The very first devotional in the book addresses that God does, in fact, hear us as we cry out to him for help. As the story goes, the Israelites were crying out to the Lord for rescue from their suffering. And you write that in turning to the Lord, he would, quote, use their prayer as a means to start the journey from oppression to freedom. I thought that observation was so meaningful. So would you expand on what you meant by it and why it's important to turn to God instead of things of this world to comfort our sorrows? Yeah. So the Israelites, like you said, they'd been held in captivity as slaves for centuries in Egypt. And 
Their treatment by Pharaoh was just getting worse. As they became more numerous, the Egyptians were fearing that there'd be an uprising. So Pharaoh came up with the idea to kill all the Hebrew boy babies. And in the Israelites' despair, they cried out to the Lord. They took their grievances to him. And that was the prayer that God used to begin their journey from oppression to freedom. So in Exodus 2, 24 to 25, it tells us that God heard their groaning and that God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob, that he saw the people of Israel and God knew. So this example actually shows Israelites doing something good in that they're crying out to the Lord in their despair. I think all too often we can look to the tangible things of the world to make us feel better. So for me, that might be a piece of triple chocolate cake or Mm. picking up the phone and calling a friend or a trip to the mall or even just running to my husband. We want the quick fix of something or someone lifting up our shattered spirits. But the first place we should be running is to the Lord because he's the one with the true power to change and transform us. And he longs for us to cry out to him. It brings God glory and honor when we cry out to him instead of looking to the things of the world to soothe our sorrows. Sometimes wilderness experiences are brought about by new seasons of life where we feel really ill-equipped for what lies ahead. Maybe we see a storm brewing on the horizon and we know our ships are charting directly for it, but we have no idea how we're going to handle the difficulties ahead. That can feel really overwhelming. Yet you liken these instances to something God helped Moses work through, writing, quote, If he has clearly called us to the task, he will see that we carry it through. How can we find courage for these times in our lives by looking to the relationship between Moses and God? Yeah, well, Moses was the epitome of an insecure leader, and he was called to a task much greater than what he felt prepared for. So when God spoke to him, out of a burning bush and gave him the assignment of delivering more than 2 million Israelites out of slavery in Egypt. He wasn't exactly excited for the calling. And in Exodus 3.11, he says, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? God reassures Moses that he'll be with him, but still it doesn't take away Moses's insecurity. So he keeps thinking of excuses as to why he's not the best choice for the job. Next, he cites that the Israelites won't believe him or listen to him. But again, we see God's compassion on Moses as he equips him with miracles to perform in front of the Israelites, a staff that becomes a serpent, a cloak that heals a leprous hand, water from the Nile that will turn to blood. But for the third time, Moses still resists and doubts his ability as a public speaker, and even then asks God to send somebody else. So talk about an insecure leader. Even though God's anger is kindled and he rebukes Moses, he still shows compassion to him, and he sends his brother Aaron to speak to the Israelites. God provided a way for a doubting and insecure leader to accomplish the task he had given him. And in the same way, we can trust that when God calls us to something that seems impossible or daunting, he'll provide a way for us to complete it. It really reminds me of just even recent problems that I've had to deal with. And you just sit there and with these storms in life feeling like, Lord, our eyes are on you. We don't know what in the world 
we're going to do against the great horde that is coming against us. It just makes me feel like because we are in a culture where we have everything at our fingertips, we have apps for everything, we can do two clicks to find something we want. If we're looking at something we don't want, we do one click and it goes away. And so we're instantly drawn to fast solutions. And so our ability to wait and to be patient and to long suffer, I feel like is really impacted. We have to Mm -hmm. be okay with, Lord, I'm crying out to you. I don't think I can do this. I don't know how I'm going to do this. But, you know, your word says that you'll help me. And so just for me, I think where I've had to recently really exercise we're talking about here in, in turning to God in a wilderness experience is we're going to be forced to learn the discipline of waiting in these seasons. Yeah, yeah, Christine, I think that's such a good insight, because we do, we live in a world of instant gratification. And yeah, with technology, with phones, with fast food, I mean, all kinds of things, we don't have to wait. And so, yeah, learning to wait on the Lord and needing to trust him and needing to have faith that he is going to do what he said he would is definitely a way that he sanctifies us. I'm going to go out on a limb and say that there are probably many people listening to this episode who, like me, know that this statement you wrote in your book is true. So here's the statement. It goes, quote, difficult circumstances in life can tend to harden us. It's sad to admit that that's true. But if I'm being honest, walking through trials and tribulations is the ultimate battleground for our spiritual allegiance. And a lot of times we find ourselves needing to pull up roots of unbelief that we didn't even know existed. Why do you think it's so easy to become blind to God's promises when we are walking through suffering and hardship? Well, I think often in the midst of difficulty, we become fearful So we start living in the what-if scenarios. What if this difficult ministry situation never changes? What if we can't pay our bills? What if my child won't ever recover from this illness or accident? And when we start to dwell on all the possible things that could go wrong, the promises of God just seem to fly out the window. Because instead of dwelling on truth, we're dwelling on those difficult life circumstances. It's our sinful nature to see the glass as half full, to anticipate the worst. And suddenly we're not meditating on the hope-filled promises of God's word, but on our present trials or on the fear of the future. And we see this played out in Exodus when in the midst of the Israelites, their working conditions were getting worse. They had to make bricks without straw. But Moses tries to give them some hope and reminds them of God's promise that he will provide ultimate rest in Canaan. But the Israel Israelites don't listen. And it tells us because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery, the intense working conditions had made them numb and robbed them of joy and peace. I think it can feel like God isn't hearing our prayers. We forget that God is faithful and that he's good and that he's in control. There's a chapter in your book which talks about God's way of escape, and it really reminded me of the book Pilgrim's Progress. So I've never done this on the show before, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go all out here because I just love this quote from Pilgrim's Progress, and I want to share it, and I want to ask you to interact with it as well. For those of you who aren't familiar, Pilgrim's Progress is an allegory that was written by John Bunyan in the 17th century, and he actually wrote it during his 12-year imprisonment, which was a punishment 
he was there being punished for refusing to agree to give up his preaching in nonconformist religious meetings, which was outlawed by the British monarchy during that time. Now, there's a main character in the story named Christian, and he has arrived in the story at the hill called Difficulty. He's told very specifically earlier on in his travels to remain on the narrow way, which happened to lead up this treacherous hill. And so while a few other men that were traveling with him decided to go around the hill by roads called danger and destruction, Christian thought, and then he made one of the most profound statements about Christian obedience that I have ever read. Here's the quote. Though the hill is high, I still desire to walk up it. I don't care how difficult it is because I understand that it leads to the way of life. Cheer up heart and don't grow faint or fear because even if it is difficult, it is better to go this way because it is the right way. For while the wrong way is easier, it ends in anguish." What is Christian saying in this moment, Stacy, as he looks up to this huge hill of difficulty, and how does it encourage us to resist diverting roads that aren't God's true way of escape? That's such a great quote and a really good illustration of the Christian life. God's way of escape is often not the easy thing to do or the spiritual quick fix. It's often the longer or harder path, but the path filled with the most joy. Christian understands that even though the hill looks arduous to climb, he trusts that it's the best way. He trusts that though God's way is not easy, it's right and good. And in the story of the Israelites' journey, God avoids the easiest path to the promised land because it goes right through the heart of the Philistine territory. The Israelites would have been easily crushed and defeated by them, which would have shattered their confidence in God. So instead, in his mercy, he takes them the long way around to the promised land via the wilderness and the Red Sea, where the difficulties that they face would increase their trust in God. So we need to realize that God doesn't always provide a smooth and easy path for us but one filled with bumps and turns that keep us clinging to him. And in the midst of the journey, we can have peace and we can have joy knowing that we're following the one true light. When we're faced with trials and temptations, God promises to provide a way of escape. I just can't help but think of Jesus's Passion Week. What was his mm. What was his path that he was on? And I think sometimes we feel like in the Christian life that these things are supposed to be easy. But show me the Bible verse that says that. Right. <laughs> because there are a lot more Bible verses that warn us about the difficulties that are ahead. Jesus, he says himself, if I have to go through these things, you're not going to be exempt from them. You know, the student is not higher than the teacher. And right. so just, again, going back to thinking about Jesus's own passion and his torture and path to Calvary and what he had to endure on that hill. You know, it was a tremendous amount of sorrowing and suffering, but it was an eternity's worth of sorrowing for us Mm -hmm. so that we could have confidence that our sorrowing and suffering today is finite. It has an end. I think you're spot on with the observation that we are sometimes prone to think that trading today's problems for yesterday's would erase our unhappiness and satisfaction. Even Ecclesiastes 7.10 gives us this warning when the preacher says, don't long for the good old days. This is not wise. 
Now, if that is in God's word and it says don't, that means God is trying to protect us from harming ourselves through our poor choices. So can you tell us about a time this actually happened as the Israelites were walking in the wilderness and maybe how those of us who struggle today can correct our thinking in this area? Yeah, definitely. The Israelites give us a few examples of idealizing their past. So the first one that comes to mind is after they've been delivered from Egypt and are about to cross the Red Sea, when suddenly they see the massive Egyptian army coming after them with their horses and chariots, and they're paralyzed in fear. So in Exodus 14, we see them crying out to the Lord, asking him why he took them out of Egypt, if only they were going to die in the wilderness. So they actually say, for it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. Their present hardship is causing them to forget the chains that they were in just days earlier. They're forgetting the forced labor, their treatment as possessions rather than people, their inability to choose where to live or work. And again, later on in the journey, we see the Israelites complaining about their menu choices and wishing they were back in Egypt where they had plenty of meat. So it's a classic case of the grass is greener on the other side. It's so easy for us to do the same thing, to think that life was easier in a different time. So maybe life was easier when my kids were little and I wasn't having to run them to a hundred activities <laughs> or mm-hmm. life was easier when we lived in, you know, in that other state, in that other house. So when we find ourselves daydreaming about a former time in life that we wish we could go back to, we need to fix our minds on the truth of God's character of who he is that God is good, that he's worthy to be trusted, that he is for us and not against us, that God is good in both the good times and the hard times of life. We need to remember that God is sovereign, that nothing catches him by surprise. He knew and ordained that the Israelites would be pursued by the Egyptians at the Red Sea. He knows the very hairs on our head and he ordains whatever circumstance we find ourselves walking in. And finally, God is faithful. He'll never leave us or forsake us. He's faithful to keep his promises. And he promises to use all things for the good of those who love him, who've been called by his purpose. I wonder if there has ever been anyone besides Jesus Christ on this planet who has walked through an incredibly difficult season of life without uttering one complaint. Wherever there is hardship, complaining usually isn't that far behind. So what can we learn from the Israelites' example when it comes to dealing with unsavory circumstances? Well, when the, when the Israelites were complaining to Moses and Aaron about their food choices or their lack of food choices, Moses rebuked them by telling them that their grumbling wasn't against them, but was really against the Lord. So oftentimes when we're complaining about our circumstances in life, we're really just complaining about God. We're telling God that we know better, that what he provided isn't really good enough. For example, when we get annoyed that our kids keep interrupting our work by asking for snacks, we lash out at them. Or maybe we quietly murmur to our coworkers about the seemingly bad decision the boss just made. Or we get frustrated with the clerk at the store who rang up our items wrong and correct her with an irritated tone of voice. Yet in all these situations, we need to remember who is sovereign over every interruption and every unsavory circumstance in our life. We can pray for God to guard our mouths from making the same mistake as the Israelites. 
But I also want to differentiate between sinful complaining and taking our needs to the Lord. So oftentimes, complaining is done with other people, which also makes it contagious, right? Once one person begins complaining, there's a chain reaction. This is a marked difference when we're taking our complaints before the Lord, such as when the Israelites cried out for help and deliverance from slavery. So I think really we have to look at what is our heart attitude in our complaint? Is it entitlement or bitterness or a resentful spirit at our circumstance? Or is it a humble and contrite heart asking for God's mercy and grace? I'm actually walking through a season right now where I'm working through an issue with one of our children, and I have been terribly convicted in a good way about the grumbling and complaining that I have let come out of my mouth as I attempt to help my child through this particular situation. And I had to actually go to one of my mentors and tell her and say, you know what, I'm really dissatisfied with how I've been reacting to this constant need that I'm being beckoned to, to continually serve my child. And I learned you know, thanks to the Holy Spirit that I was offering my body, it has to do with potty training, I won't get graphic, but Mm. offering my body (laughs) to, you know, go and help my child with this particular issue that they're having, but I would go and walk to help her, but at the same time grumble and complain through my mouth. And so I was sacrificing my body to go help, but I was not sacrificing my attitude. And Mm. it's clear in times when we're being called to do something we just don't want to do, that we need to be sacrificing both, not just simply our presence in the situation, but also our our attitude about it. And I love First Peter 2 when he talks about that we are a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And I just can't help but think that this battle that I personally have with grumbling and complaining is the Lord helping me to learn how to offer up spiritual sacrifices when I'm called to do something I do not want to be doing. Uh, Mm -hmm. And that's just how it is. And and thankfully, through prayer and through discipleship, I've seen the Lord really help me in that area. That's a really good example, because, you know, parenting is where the rubber meets the road and where we can so easily struggle with our hard attitude, with things that are annoying us with our kids. I know from personal experience that when we find ourselves in prolonged periods of pain, we are often tempted to just isolate and walk alone. For me, that isolation was typically self-inflicted, but over the years I've learned to let a very select few people into my life for the purposes of supporting me during worrying seasons, like I just mentioned. I appreciated the statement you wrote, quote, we are not meant to be Lone Ranger Christians. Would you explain what you mean by this statement and what are the dangers of being a Lone Ranger? In our fiercely independent, pull yourself up by your bootstraps society, there is a temptation to think that we don't need other people. Yet the Christian life isn't meant to be lived alone. We need each other to fight the fight of faith, to hold each other accountable, to remind one another of the truth of God's word, to spur each other on to love and good deeds. And Hebrews 3.13 reminds us that we are vulnerable to being hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. We can begin to coast through life, justifying to ourselves the ungodly decisions we're making simply because there's no one there to help us admit what's really going on. And in Exodus 17, the Israelites were in a battle with the Amalekites. Moses stood on top of a hill with the staff in his hand. And when his arms were raised, Israel prevailed. But when he lowered his arms, 
Amalek prevailed. As the battle raged on, he began to tire and he needed the help of Aaron and Hur. They held up his hands, one on one side and one on the other, until Israel won the battle. What a beautiful picture of the steadying strength of the body of Christ. We need each other. We can't fight the fight of faith alone. What if thoughts can run rampant when we feel like we're stuck in a desert place? We've spoken on the show about what ifs before and how they're really based on presumptions instead of actual evidence. When facing moments of fear and panic, especially when thinking about the uncertain future that lies ahead, you comfort readers with seven things to remember, essentially seven pieces of divine evidence. So do you mind sharing what those seven things are? Sure. The first one is God's truth. So that's asking, is what I'm thinking about really happening? Or is it just my imagination running wild? Paul reminds us in Philippians 4, 8 to dwell on what's true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, excellent, and praiseworthy. The second thing is God's presence. We can be comforted remembering that we are not alone, that God is with us. Psalm 46, 1, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. The third one is God's grace, that God promises to provide us with his all-sufficient grace for every trial that comes our way. Jesus told Paul, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. So along with Paul, we can therefore boast all the more gladly of our weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell upon us. That's 2 Corinthians 12, 9. Number four is God's sovereignty. God is in control of every situation in our lives. Daniel 4.35 says, All the inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, What have you done? The fifth one is that God listens. Pour out your heart to God in prayer. Psalm 41, I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. The sixth one is God's trustworthiness. When I'm afraid, I put my trust in you. In God, whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? Psalm 56, 3-4. And finally, the last one, God's big picture plan, that no matter how awful the trial may seem, God promises to use everything together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, the great promise of Romans 8.28, we may not see the good in our situation at the time, but we can trust that God has a hidden smile behind the dark cloud. Well, after hearing all of those scriptures and then talking about being a lone ranger, I can't help but think how impossible it is to turn to these truths and really pull ourselves up by our bootstraps, as some of us are tempted to do, without, number one, knowing God's word. And number two, mm -hmm. if we don't know God's word all that well, having people who will help us, as you mentioned, and not being a lone ranger, but helping to carry the burden with us and point us back to truth when we are really wavering or just feeling completely overwhelmed. And I really love the book by Dietrich Bonhoeffer called Life Together. And in it, there's a quote that I just love. I've been quoting it for years, but it's so applicable to this discussion about really using these seven pieces of divine evidence from the scriptures and being sure that we are surrounding ourselves with fellow Christians who can carry burdens with us. Listen to what he says about the topic. Therefore, the Christian needs another Christian who speaks God's word to him. 
He needs him again and again when he becomes uncertain and discouraged, for by himself he cannot help himself without belying the truth. He needs his brother man as a bearer and proclaimer of the divine word of salvation. He needs his brother solely because of Jesus Christ. The Christ in his own heart is weaker than the Christ in the word of his brother. His own heart is uncertain. His brother's is sure." So again, just that idea of turning to community when we are feeling like we're walking through a wilderness experience and and that that community can be one of the main ways that the Lord holds us up and helps us to endure uh, when we feel like our strength is spent because he sends people to us. He's you know, mm-hmm. sends us comforts and encouragements from his scriptures. And so if you're listening to th- today's show and you've jotted down notes from what Stacy just read, and now you're going to try to put a plan into action to do this all yourself to fix your problems, uh, that's not what we're saying at all. Bring that list of scriptures, call up a friend or a mentor, and have someone help you to walk through this time. Um, so that you can really grow closer to God, but also just get the support that you need because we are finite humans and we need each other. God made us that way. I'd like to invite you to do something I ask every guest on the show to do, which is to speak directly to the audience. There may be someone listening to this episode who feels like they have been wandering the wilderness for months. They're tired, worn, and upset that life has just been so hard on them, seemingly without a break. They believe in Jesus Christ, but they just can't help but wonder why he's brought them to this place and why he hasn't moved to deliver them from it yet. What would you say to this person to give them the courage they need not to grow weary in climbing their own hill of difficulty? Well, the first thing I'd say to someone in the midst of a desert time is that God sees you. Your suffering doesn't go unnoticed. God loves you and has compassion on you. Our lives as Christians are not meant to be easy. We're not exempt from suffering. But God tells us that we should expect suffering in this life. Our hope is that in the midst of the difficulties, God is working for our good. No suffering is wasted. He uses every trial you face to conform you to his image and to make you dependent on him. So if you're feeling like you can't keep going, lean into the promises of God. Trust that he is for you and not against you, that God will withhold no good thing from those who are walking with him. Our wilderness times prepare us for eternity. They wean us from the comforts of this world and make us long for heaven. God is working in the midst of your pain, and he promises to not only comfort you in the midst, but allow you to comfort others that are experiencing similar trials. Well, such important things to remember, Stacy. Thank you so much for sharing those encouragements with us today. Now, if there's somebody listening to the show who wants to get connected with you and your writing ministry, is there somewhere online where they can go to learn more about your articles and other resources you have? Yeah, my website, stacyreoc.com, has links to all my articles and my book, Wilderness Wanderings. Um, and then also just social media, Instagram is sreoc. And Facebook and Twitter are just Stacy Riach. 
Well, very good. I will be sure to link to those places in the show notes. So if you are interested in connecting with Stacy right this second, you can scroll down to the show notes, click on the link that is available there, and that will take you to the page where you can access all of Stacy's information and get connected with her. Well, I just want to thank you, Stacy, for taking the time to join us today. This was such a really insightful discussion, and I really enjoyed reading the book. I loved and appreciated how faithful to the scriptures you were. If you are not looking for a devotional that is just full of fluff, I would highly recommend this book. Stacy sticks with the scriptures, and she masterfully, in my opinion, unfolds them for the reader in a way that really helps us to apply the truths to our own particular circumstances. So Stacy, thank you so much for being on the show. Thanks for having me. It was a pleasure. Before we let you go, I'd like to remind you to visit faithfulsparrow.com forward slash project. There you can check out the show notes from today's episode. If you enjoyed today's conversation, why not subscribe to the podcast? That way you'll be notified when new weekly episodes release. Also, please don't keep the Hope and Help Project a secret. If you know someone who could be encouraged by listening to this episode, please do them a favor by sharing it. One more thing, if you're looking for gospel hope and help for life's challenging problems, visit faithfulsparrow.com forward slash email. I send my email subscribers weekly biblical counseling resources on rotating topics. From videos, audios, articles, and recommended reading, these emails are designed to equip you to discover gospel hope and help in your own life. Thanks so much for listening to today's show. Be sure to join us next time on the Hope and Help Project.